And welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the very prayerful intersection of faith and reason. And I'm Doug Keck, your gatekeeper here from Irondale, Alabama, where Mother Angelica began it all back in 1981. And of course, this is the mothership, as uh, Father Spitzer would refer to it as. And of course, your questions are so important, so we want to mention right at the top, Spitzer's Universe uh, at EW10.com. Send us uh, those questions there. And check out all of Father Spitzer's websites. You can read them on the screen, the Magis Center, Credible Catholic, Purposeful Universe as well. Uh, check those out. And we've also got uh, the idea that EWTN On Demand's page is being populated not only with this wonderful program, but many other great EWTN programs produced by our wonderful crew here. We're constantly adding programs to our On Demand page. And check out the recent edition of Voices of the Persecuted Nineveh's Christians in Exile program we did a couple of years ago dealing with uh, what was going on in the Middle East and, and dealing with what was going on in Iraq and Syria. So you can check that out. We're also going to be talking about the cardinal virtues as we were talking last week. And of course, from Father's wonderful book, which I'm sure you have already, but if you'd like to give it to your friend, you can go to EW10's religious catalog, pick it up there as well. And the book of the month from EW10 Publishing for the month of June by our great friend, Father Wade Manises, very popular homilist here on EW10, Catholic Essentials, a guide to understanding key church teachings. And you know if Father Wade wrote it, he tells it like it is. Speaking of that, we're going to turn to another priest who tells it like it is, our own Father Spitzer. How are you, Father? Doing great, Doug. Great to be with you. Right. Absolutely. So if you'll kick us off with a prayer, as always, that would be wonderful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the many blessings you give us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to bless Doug, myself, our whole audience this day, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen. amen. And Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Father. And here we are in a week coming out of uh, Memorial Day. And uh, I was thinking uh, as well back to uh, that horrible incident that happened in Texas and just remind yeah. everybody to keep uh, those families that have been so affected in your prayers and keep the country in your prayers. Here's a story that came out recently, and since you're an educator at heart, uh, it came out, it says, with plunging enrollment, a seismic hit to public schools. Uh, this is from the May 18th. Altogether, America's public schools have lost 1.2 million students since 2020. According to a recently published national survey, state enrollment figures show no sign of rebound to the previous national levels anytime soon. Goes on to say, some parents became so fed up with remote instruction or mask mandates that they started homeschooling their children or sending them to private or parochial schools that largely remained open during the pandemic. And it goes on to say, in large urban districts, the drop-off has been particularly acute. The Los Angeles Unified School District non-charter schools lost 43,000 students over the past two school years, Chicago 25,000. Your thoughts? Well, I think there's a variety of reasons, but they covered two of them. Mm -hmm. I, I do think uh, parents were really upset with the, uh, the mask mandates and the COVID um, 
uh, ongoing COVID situation long past what it really needed to be um, for, uh, you know, isolating people to at-home learning. Um, and all of these things did, uh, in fact, lead to a huge increase in uh, Catholic school attendance um, in Orange County in Los Angeles, um, and also a huge increase in homeschooling. Uh, so uh, both of those reasons which were cited by the article are correct. I think also um, you have uh, uh, people who are uh, now considering, uh, um, you know, uh, other uh, charter school options that had not um, you know, thought about charter schools uh, previously. And um, so I do think uh, the population has shifted mm -hmm. and it looks like it's going to probably, con I don't think it's gonna bounce back. I think it's gonna continue shifting in favor right. of charter schools, private schools, and um, uh, you know, homeschooling. I think it, the, the trend is gonna go, keep going in that direction. But I think it's also not just because of COVID, I think people really do want their kids to have uh, some values. Mm -hmm. uh, they really want their kids to have, you know, that discipline of, uh, you know, within the school mm -hmm. ranks itself, which uh, will keep them focused on, on their collegiate uh, um, preparation. I think they also um, have a desire mm -hmm. to keep religion in some context within the school. Of course, that's uh, not going to happen necessarily in a charter school, mm -hmm. but in the religious schools. Right. And in uh, the homeschooling environment, uh, certainly that will happen. So um, I think uh, the, the trend will continue. And I think that there's going to be increasing right. pressure uh, for more and more charter schools, we, too. I just think it has to be. Now, we all know that obviously, you know, there's been a secularization in society, and certainly we've seen that in the culture. Uh, were you surprised, like many people were, I certainly say I was somewhat surprised at the level of, I guess I'd use the word indoctrination uh, of this kind of secular perspective and let alone the Guttmeyer Institute becoming the great uh, informative uh, fact of uh, from Planned yeah, Parenthood. What's yeah, yeah Guttmacher <laughs> or what's going on. But you know to the level of how much stuff you know even those math books where they they uh -huh. they, they they include the the problems based on trying to put across yeah. a perspective. Were you surprised yeah. at the degree that it was going on? Yeah, that's pretty shocking, right. actually. Right. Uh, but the good part about that extremism uh, in the textbooks and things is it really has gotten parents to be activistic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and, and um, that has happened. I mean, they've been going now to their various, um, you know, school boards and uh, educational boards uh, across the country, not just in, I mean, L.A., certainly so, uh, but in other um major cities as well. So there is uh, not only a movement toward private and charter and, mm. and homeschooling, but also uh, you're now seeing an activist movement that has pretty much mm -hmm. uh, been besieging a lot of the, um, the school boards across the country, which I think is a very, very good thing. Uh, I mean, the secularism is so rampant, mm -hmm. so deep, so, uh, you know, almost opaque that other people uh, who are sending their kids to public schools could have another viewpoint than the ones that are blatantly shared. I mean, talk about, uh, you know, literally indoctrinating people with secularism, uh, contrary to, you know, people's religious values. Mm -hmm. That's as much a, a you know, a, 
I mean, talk about, you know, a, 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 we won't call it a church and state thing. We'll call it a secular, secular religion and state mm -hmm. uh, separation. We need a little of that, a lot more of that. And I think that's what's really happening um, with the school board um, activists mm -hmm. now across the country, which I, right. I think it, it just uh, high time it happened. Right, and, and also the idea just that, uh, you know, I guess we should have been keyed when history became social studies, but it seems like we yeah. went from education to socialization being the major yeah. emphasis. Yeah, no, uh, uh, no question about it. I mean, it's almost as if, uh, you know, somebody had really thought this out. Mm -hmm. I, I, I'm, I really do believe somebody had thought <laughs> this out. And I thought there was, a, I think there was a socialization agenda that really has started in the late 1960s mm. and it kind of eased its way forward. It uh, got in there through executive committees, through the Department of Education. Uh, now there were breaks from that uh, during the Reagan and Bush administration and to a certain extent during the Trump administration. Uh, there were, really were breaks, uh, but uh, by that time there is a, or was really a preponderance of belief on the part of the, the public school teachers. And therein lies the difficulty because I think they have been firmly indoctrinated. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the difficulty is a lot of these public school teachers, though they are educators and they're very good readers and, and things of that nature, they do tend um, to accept almost blindly uh, an ideology mm -hmm. uh, that has been unchallenged critically by them. I mean, if they began to look uh, at the underlying assumptions, especially about religion and morality and the falsities embedded about religion and morality mm -hmm. and the ideology they have accepted, they wouldn't be so uncritically right. accepting of them. And so I think that the first thing that we need to do is encourage uh, public school teachers to just at least look critically at what is being fed to them. But how can I blame them when I see college professors who uncritically accept the secularized uh, perspective as well? Mm -hmm. And they do. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I mean, truly, I see literature teachers, history teachers, etc., who are just dogmatists who have never subjected their viewpoint to any kind of critical apparatus. I mean, they just uh, really blindly accept it if it belongs to the gang that they participate right, in. Right. And so, uh, you know, I, I am, I'm just uh, really stunned uh, at, at that. And the second thing that I'm stunned by uh, is not only do they not apply criticism to it, they accuse religious people hmm. of being less critical than them, but exactly right. the opposite is the case. I mean, religious people, uh, you know, I mean, there are plenty of people, certainly myself, mm -hmm. who have subjected everything from God to the soul to Jesus, tr looked at all the evidence, have just truly studied it mm -hmm. from start to finish, exegetical perspectives, historical perspectives, scientific perspectives, etc. And I'm telling you that, you know, if you really have a good critical apparatus, mm -hmm. you're going to wind up being religious on the basis of the evidence rather than secular. And right. certainly with respect to morality, my gosh, you know, rather than getting critical, how about just a self-examination inwardly looking at your conscience and just saying, do you really buy this? Mm -hmm. Do you really think that Marxist totalitarianism is going to be a solution? 
solution to the world's problems. We, you don't even have to look, you know, 30 yards distant, right. and you're going to see, hey, wait a minute here. It's been a miserable failure. Every instance of it has been a miserable failure that has led to the impoverishment mm -hmm. of whole nations, has led to totalitarian, you know, eradication of freedom on all levels. And you think that this is going to advance us socially? This is social progressivism? How could a teacher, how could a professor be thinking this? I, I'm just sitting here in a state of wonder at what has been uncritically uh, you know, accepted by the so-called academic establishment. I think religious people subject themselves to a far more rigorous critical apparatus, to a far more rigorous um, you know, criteria of evidence mm -hmm. than uh, most academics do right. uh, to the well, ideological program a, that they accept. Do you think there's almost a form of Gnosticism with some of these people where it's kind of like they've been taught in the, in the that yeah the parent they're well-meaning but they don't understand really how things really should work and what's really good and so we have this kind of special knowledge that we've been passed on that yeah. we have mm -hmm. to move on to the which you know appeals to all of our pride if you happen to be in the group uh, you know, yeah. kind mm -hmm. of a thing. You know, I mean, I'm sure there is yeah. a kind of a Gnostic sort of pride there, uh, you know, of having the secret knowledge. Right. But I also think, um, at the same time, I think a lot of professors and teachers get into it, uh, as C.S. Lewis said, because of the problem of the inner circle. Mm -hmm. Everybody wants to belong to the inner circle, uh. and um, I really love the book that that hideous strength, mm. because. It points out just the kinds of absurdities that so-called intelligent people, the so you know the abandonment of morality, the abandonment of reason that so-called really intelligent people who should have a critical apparatus, they'll accept it all in order to belong to the inner circle. They'll even abandon their families, they'll abandon their friends, they'll betray their families and friends to scramble up into the inner circle. And because of that, um, you know, problem. They they do the these these people. They right. they want to belong so badly because that's the only thing that gives them real meaning. Right. I'm accepted by the enlightened gang. I'm accepted by the inner circle. I belong to the people you right. want to belong to. That's my meaning in life. Instead of I belong to God. I seek my wisdom through him, I listen to my conscience, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, I, I have to tell you, it just amazes me um, how they have left it all uh, to become part of that inner circle. And the inner circle has nothing to offer except emptiness and betrayal at its highest levels. Right. After they finish using you, don't worry. Just like the Marxist regimes, They'll chew you up and spit you out. Well, they could care less well, about you. Well, they're all you. utilitarians, ultimately. So, yeah, I mean, that's what really and, and they have no compassion. Mm -hmm. And they have absolutely no compassion. And the idea of rights, that term never even existed mm -hmm. uh, in, in, the, uh, in the rights doctrine of, um, 
of Marx. I mean, mm -hmm. you can't find um, you know individual rights in the whole writings of Marx. So I mean, uh, that just tells right. you right there: uh, Are your rights going to be honored in the future? You think you're really going to be free in the future? You really think you're going to create a, a, a better moral mm -hmm. future without morality, without listening to your conscience, without objective moral principles? You really think this? You really think that you can just subject everyone to a totalitarian, so-called Big Brother benevolent regime, and everything's going to turn out all right? in the end go ahead give right. away your freedom go ahead I mean this is just ridiculous it is it, it's you know the, the the lemming mentality and the academic modality is just like it's right. the most pathetic thing you can see I mean you just look at it and you go you got to be kidding right the so-called intellectuals are right. finally but, but, becoming lemmings to the furthest extent right possible. But being, oh being well considered an intellectual <laughs> is a subjective thing so you have to make sure yeah. that you're that you're I'll approved say. in what it is. And also, what was it, Chesterton who sort of said, you know, some ideas are, so, are, are just so ridiculous, only intellectuals believe them, you know, or something along those <laughs> yeah, exactly. ideas. People of, of common sense right. wouldn't even look at it. You right, know? exactly. He said, it, th this, this is absurd. <laughs> the other thing, just before we got off this topic, I, mean, just, I was surprised, I have to say, I always had this kind of deluded idea, apparently, that like school boards were kind of represented the parents and we're kind of like yeah. a super version of the PTA. And it's funny yeah. to watch this, these groups that seem to set themselves in opposition against the parents who ultimately are the taxpayers who are ultimately paying for everything, aren't they? Oh, oh, absolutely. And so, you know, the, that's why the parents are getting on top of the school boards. Mm. Now they are reacting and they're really good movements that are, uh, you know, being formed out there. And the moms are going down there and saying, you know, to these so-called board representatives, hey, you know, this doesn't represent us at all. We don't believe anything, uh, you know, about what you're saying, what you're sticking into these textbooks. We're now watching you, and you're not watching what's happening to our kids. You are allowing them to undergo a thoroughgoing secular and anti-moral, uh, you know, um, indoctrination. Mm -hmm. And we're not taking it anymore. Uh, the old line from, uh, uh, you know, we're sick and yeah. tired of this. And we're not taking Network. it anymore. Howard Beale, right. <laughs> Howard yeah, Beale. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah, everybody should shout out the, shout out the window. The window. And the one thing we should sh do a shout out in, 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 in the aftermath of what we've seen is to those wonderful sisters who, in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, yeah. taught 50 kids in a class with limited oh, education yeah. themselves and turned out the most educated group of people in the United States. And not only educated, but really well formed mm -hmm. in their morality with a sense of mor uh, uh, conscience and, and a sense of religion and mm -hmm. a sense of, of a really respectful obedience to God. And, and of course, the, the idea too that they would be good citizens mm -hmm. and productive citizens and that they felt, you know, the, a real, uh, you know, conscientious desire to help mm -hmm. their neighbor. I mean, uh, they put out great, great kids. Right. And I think, uh, yeah, that legacy. Uh, I think we're moving. You know, I look at some of the uh, the new um, uh, groups of sisters out mm -hmm. there, who are, you know, many of right. them right. are educators. Uh, you know, and uh, you you look at the work that they're doing, and 
it's fantastic. They're they're the Nashville Dominicans, Mother and uh, oh. Mother Assumptus Order. Uh, I was, uh, absolutely, name a couple. Absolutely, oh yeah, right. they're great. They're great, and you know the the mothers of uh, I mean the sisters of Mary, Mother of the Church. You know, right. uh, up there too. You know, they're they're truly many many right. of them uh, all over the place. Right, and our own Mother Angelica sisters who were praying for everybody. Yes, twenty-four seven. That helps us go along. Let's get on to some questions here. Sure. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, in Matthew five twenty-five, Jesus says, "You will not get out until you have paid the last penny." Does this mean that one goes to purgatory until his sins are paid for, or does that mean something else? John. No, uh, it means something else. I mean, it really is referring to what, what Jesus is trying to say is, is uh, here is that you, you know, you sow the seeds of your of what is justly deserving to you. Mm -hmm. But you know, in the same breath, you know, what Jesus is trying to say is, if you stay in this mode, in other words, that's the whole condition. Then you know, if you hate your neighbor, if if you do evil, uh, you know, uh, to them, if you don't forgive them from the heart, if you just keep on doing this as a matter of course, what you're doing is you're kind of condemning yourself, uh, you know, to a life of real uh, difficulty and challenge in this world and in the life to come. Mm -hmm. Because what you're doing is you're undermining God's own capacity to help you with his forgiving love. If you don't forgive, if you don't love your neighbor, you know, and you know, you, again, you're perpetuating uh, this thing. So he's trying to tell people, and obviously, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a, a hyperbolic metaphorical way. Mm -hmm. He's telling them, that you know you you're gonna you know what goes around comes around you know basically you you keep doing this stuff and it's gonna keep it'll come right around to you but it's not just gonna undermine you in your relationships in this world it's not just gonna undermine you in your happiness in this world it's gonna undermine you in your relationships and happiness in the next world and it may well involve some form of purgatory going on into the next life but Jesus's idea is not just retribution Jesus's idea here is you know the criterion you use will be the criterion dealt out to you right. in other words the idea of you know what goes around comes around so you know and he actually says a little later on in Matthew he says you know the 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 measure with which you measure will be the measure measured out to you very good okay here's a similar question and it kind of comes from somebody who had I think a little bit of a question about one of the previous answers. Dear Father Spitzer, on a recent show, you discussed whether Aquinas, Augustine, and Pascal thought most people end up in hell. Your answer focused on whether they were in the position to judge the fate of individual souls, whether they, mm -hmm. uh, and where uh, we, we know as Catholics, we cannot do that, of course, judging mm -hmm. those individual souls. However, it was mm -hmm. Jesus himself who encouraged us to enter through the narrow gate, but there are yeah. few who find it. So does this not mean that most souls will be lost, Frank? Frank, you have to be very careful about applying it to salvation. And Jesus is not trying to make a statement about how many people are going to be saved or not. What Jesus is trying to do is give us a warning. Mm -hmm. It is a prophetic warning. If you do not look for the narrow gate, 
if you do not try to stay on the right road, if you get on the road to perdition, which is the wider road, and he's telling us it's easier to get on that road than it is to get into the narrow gate. So you're going to have to be vigilant. You're going to have to really take care to not get on the road. And if you do get on the road, you know, of course, Jesus' whole life was spent saying, get off the road. Turn around, even if it's at the ninth hour, right? At the end of the day, you can still be saved, but get off the road. Mm -hmm. So Jesus is not trying to say, you're going to go to hell anyway. Don't worry about it. He's not trying to say, oh, most people are going to hell, so, you know, you, you may as well lose hope right now. Mm -hmm. He's not trying to say anything like that at all. What he's trying to say is that the road to perdition is so easy to get on. The road to perdition is so easy to stay on. It's so easy to accelerate on. The devil is there. He's making it look great. He's filled with lies. Remember as our baptismal promises, right? Mm -hmm. He rejects Satan and all his works and all his empty promises. Right. He's basically tempting, tempting, tempting. And of course, the eight deadly sins are not out there because they're not deadly. They're really deadly. And so the, the idea is, yes, greed seduces us more deeply into itself. Lust seduces us more deeply into itself. Pride and envy and anger seduces more deeply into themselves. And so the problem, of course, is we have to be, as Jesus says time and time again, vigilant from the very beginning. Vigilant to stay off the wider road. Vigilant to get out of the wider road if we get onto it. And certainly, even if we're all the way down, and it's very hard to turn around. The deeper down you get, the more addicted you become, mm -hmm. the more you, you know, you're so reticent to turn your back on all the stuff you love. But of course, you can do it. You can, and you know, even if you're at the ninth hour, it's hard to do, but you can do it. And so Jesus is trying to, he's kind of giving us this prophetic warning. He's trying to give us this encouragement to stay off of it, be right. vigilant about staying off it. If you get on it, turn around as mm -hmm. soon as possible. And certainly, even if you're at the final right. you know, precipice, whatever you do, don't give up. Try to turn. Turn back to me. It might be hard, but come back to me, right. all you who, et cetera. Right, absolutely. So that's and I the, think sometimes it, there's a reaction because we've lived in a culture where so much over the last uh, 30, 40 years, it's like, well, everybody's going to be saved and everybody's going to be okay. So it doesn't well, really I matter know. what you do. And so I think some That's people want to make it's sure the, to yeah. say, well, we, you know, what about our Lord said? And like you said, it's, it's that idea yeah. of saying, well, uh, you know, if you go down the path you're on right now, you have, yeah. you're going to have problems. What uh, the Holy Father yeah. at least said when they send encounter in a company, he means in a sense, mm -hmm. meet that person on that, on that road that's not so good and kind of encounter them in such a way, kind of get them, hopefully bring them on to that narrow road, right? Yeah, absolutely. And that's what we have to do because the further down you get, the harder it harder is it to turn around. Mm -hmm. and, and there's no question about it. I mean, seduction is the only word for it. And once you're into the seduction, it's so hard to get out of it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but you know, again, Jesus is giving a prophetic warning. Mm -hmm. He's not talking about how many people this or that. He's saying, 
watch out. This is a big, wide road that leads to darkness, and it's a real mm -hmm. narrow one that doesn't. It's easy to get on one road, hard to get on another. It's easy to go down another road and harder to stay on the, 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 the higher road. But if you wow. stay on the higher road, it gets easier. Right, it's the same thing, you know, uh, except in the uh, world of light instead of the world of darkness. So if you stay on, the, you get through, go through the narrow gate, and you stick to it, stick to it. You know, it gets easier and easier. It's easier to live a moral life. Of course, you can have lapses. Of course, you can get tired or depressed or something happened, and you could go through a, a lapse, or you could make a mistake or a failure, or something could happen and you lose your. Uh, momentarily your mm -hmm. your sense of things you could do something right. like that and and um, but at the same time it, you know if you stick to that higher road it will get easier and of course uh, if it as it does get easier you get closer and closer to the light closer and closer to Jesus so that's Absolutely. what he's trying to say but Vigilance, right, and it, vigilance, perseverance, right, and, perseverance. Right, and like you talk about with the path, sometimes I think you know people feel bad because they, they say, well, I, I'm trying to do the right thing, and then I do, and I don't do well, and I fall, and I make mistakes, and then the devil says, well, you're just a hypocrite, or secularism says yeah. you're a hypocrite, but you're not a hypocrite if you're trying to live out the right thing and you yeah. fall by mistake. A hypocrite is somebody yeah. who's basically an actor who's saying the lines but doesn't believe what he's saying. Uh, absolutely, and that distinction has to be made. Mm -hmm. And relative to your first point, is the other thing that the devil says is, you've lost it all. See, mm -hmm. you went way down this road on the heavenly path, and now look at you. You subjected yourself to this or to that, whatever incident happened to you. And, and of course, now look at you. It's all gone. You've regressed back to the beginning. Mm. It's like the, the, you know, the myth of Sisyphus, and right, you're right. caught in it, you poor little fool. And of course, you know, the guy goes, oh, gosh, I give up. And they'll never give up, as Churchill said, right? Just never give up. Right. Just get back on your feet, go to confession, confess that sin, have true sorrow for your sins, and keep plowing down that road. You can take up where you left off. Right, that, that's right. Keep pushing that boulder. Okay, we shall, uh, right. we will <laughs> stay right. with you. Uh, and when Father Spitzer comes back, we hope you will stay with us as well. More of your questions and then our topic, of course, right here on Father Spitzer's Universe. We do appreciate you waiting with us for part two of Father Spitzer's Universe. And of course, we're talking about the cardinal virtues from Father's book, Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. Still a couple of questions for Father to answer before we get to that uh, so we can catch up. Dear Father Spitzer, I'm currently reading Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives. <laughs> you stated in your book that the Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter both delineate the cosmic struggle between good and evil and illustrate this battle through the use of powers other than those that come from God. Is practicing witchcraft ever good for children or anyone for that matter, even if they don't understand whether or not it is real or fictitious? Peggy. 
Peggy, practicing witchcraft is terrible <laughs> for anybody, and it's explicitly condemned by the Old Testament uh, in the Levitical Code, and no one should ever do it. So um, that is that the, pretty... uh, the end of that. And uh, I guess that is a reference to why did I use Harry Potter? Right. Uh, because, of course, the idea of uh, practicing witchcraft in, in that book, I guess... Uh, um, most people might recognize as uh, very, very imaginative and mm -hmm. mythical indeed. Um, but if it incites people uh, to to use witchcraft, you probably shouldn't read Harry Potter books. Right, right. Um, but uh, um, I would uh, definitely say that um, in the meantime, though, The Lord of the Rings is still uh, a very fine book uh, to be able to read, uh, even though, of course, there are uh, all kinds of uh, uh, intimations of uh, spiritual evil and right. and so forth. So you know, that that would be uh, uh, same my thing with response. the tales of Narnia and those things too. So I mean, oh yes, the same thing with right. Narnian uh, chronicles. Absolutely. Right. Another question, dear Father Spitzer, on your May 11th broadcast, you discussed near-death experiences and said all signs of life mm -hmm. were absent and yet persons returned to life. Thus, the term "quote unquote" near death. I'm an organ transplant recipient of almost 33 years, and without that transplant, as, as well as thousands of others, would not be alive today. Uh, I actively mm -hmm. seek to promote organ donation. My concern is the possible dilemma in that a near-death experience might not be able to occur for someone who is an organ donor and declared dead by all the clinical measures. Can you comment, Walter? Well, Walter, sure. I mean, um, you know, people have near-death experiences because God wants them to. Um, and so, uh, um, you know, uh, eventually if the person, let's suppose they're an organ donor and they, uh, um, you know, once the organ is donated, um, they are, of course, at that point uh, deceased. And they would, um, if they were going to heaven, uh, they would uh, obviously meet the Lord in an encounter uh, that's very similar with that loving white light uh, that would be there. Now, what would happen and proceed from that point, we really don't know because everybody who has uh, told us about these near-death experiences has come back. Mm -hmm. And, of course, this person would continue to proceed uh, into the heavenly kingdom with the Lord and go into a whole new realm of existence and love. So uh, for all intents and purposes, right. you should not worry about that at all. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the organ donation. So please, uh, right. you know, if, uh, um, you know, I would encourage it uh, myself if that's uh, your propensity and you want to give that gift to somebody else. Right, absolutely. Just make sure your family's aware of that and also make sure they're not that's rushing right. uh, to uh, harvest the parts uh, as yeah. well, because that's something you need <laughs> to be concerned about, unfortunately, in, in, in yeah. the world. Another question, dear Father Spitzer, I'd like to hear your thoughts on the growing popularity of mindfulness in our society and even within the church in recent years. My understanding is that mindfulness is a Buddhist practice focused on the self that is fundamentally incompatible with the Catholic idea of contemplation as communion with God. It concerns me that some Catholic writers, educators, encouraging the practice of mindfulness while ignoring our centuries old tradition of contemplation. What was your take or what is your take on this? This is from Justin. 
Well, Justin, I haven't studied, uh, you know, the Buddhist practice of mindfulness, but uh, in as much as it is Buddhist, and as you properly say, uh, in as much as it's focused on the self, uh, then I would not recommend that for anyone. Mm -hmm. I, I think God meant uh, the contemplative experience to be with him, uh, certainly not merely on ourselves. And there are other ways of obtaining peace of mind besides, uh, you know, uh, focusing on the self, mm -hmm. one of which comes through our own feelings of contemplation. Mm -hmm. Because as we contemplate, of course, the Holy Spirit guides us and helps us. The Holy Spirit gives us sen a sense of consolation. And through that sense of consolation, we get a sense of peace. So it's not necessary mm -hmm. uh, to be mindful um, at all uh, in, in the Buddhist sense. Mm -hmm. And I do try to explain that a little bit in chapter one of Christ versus Satan in our daily lives where I go through the Christian mystical experience. But the book to get is Escape from Evil's Darkness. Mm -hmm. That's the second volume in the trilogy. Uh, just take a look um, there at chapters three and four. Right. Um, and there you should get a pretty good idea of, um, uh, you know, a way of developing a contemplative life, a contemplative life that will help you to draw closer to God, that will give you, that puts you in touch with, um, you know, the uh, desolation, uh, away from the desolation, but the, in touch with the consolation uh, that the Lord is giving you and away from the desolation that might be coming from the evil spirit. And there's a little summation there yeah. of the rules for the discernment of spirits. So uh, essentially, uh, that is the... Um, uh, the main point there, yeah. and um, I would say that uh, uh, you have a pretty good, um, right. uh, you know, so a really sufficient uh, amount of uh, good contemplative material absolutely. from uh, the Christian tradition. Right, absolutely, and that's why why these kind of fashionable things are out there, and many times are taken from other traditions and then actually modified to fit the American spirit. Yeah. Uh, and aren't even true yeah. to the original uh, practices of the people in the religion. Uh, one last question here. Dear Father Spitzer, now that we know that many people of European and Asian descent have Neanderthal genes, it makes me wonder whether I should pray for my Neanderthal ancestors in addition to my other ancestors. Did they have animal souls or could they have been made in God's image and have souls like ours? Anne. And uh, you do not have to worry, Neanderthals did not have human souls. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, even Homo sapiens sapiens, that's the line of Homo sapiens that we come from, uh, which is distinct from Homo sapiens neanderthalensis, mm -hmm. uh, even um, our Homo sapiens sapiens ancestors for, you know, thousands of years, um, they, um, uh, you know, tens of thousands of years uh, did not have a soul. Mm -hmm. I think we got a soul about 60,000, 65,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, I believe there's a lot of evidence for that. I have a, um, you know, a new book coming out on that very thing. Um, and uh, it's called uh, The Great Leap Forward. Uh, I think there's a lot of evidence for this in Robert Berwick and Noam Chomsky's book, mm. Why Only Us, which is about, um, you know, the sudden emergence of conceptual, syntactically significant linguistics 60,000 years ago, 
uh, maybe as much as 70,000, but uh, probably 60,000 years ago. And at the very same, same time, we see this huge uh, uh, migration out of Africa, uh, all the way, you know, to the furthest ends of, you know, um, uh, the, the, the world. So you see mm -hmm. that they go up uh, toward um, um, uh, Asia and then toward Europe to the north, um, furthest, most extent of, of Europe. They cross the Arctic land bridge. They come to uh, North America, come all the way down to, uh, you know, the southern tip of, uh, of South America in about uh, 12,000 years. I mean, uh, you're, you got to be kidding me. I mean, something happened. And not only that, but there was no evidence of mathematics of any kind prior to 60,000 years ago. And then suddenly, 60,000 years ago, you have all the counting bones uh, in Africa. And some of them are highly sophisticated uh, counting bones uh, that are in multiple columns uh, going back like to 35,000 years um, uh, ago. And then uh, similarly, uh, with bone flutes and other kinds of musical instruments, but religion is comes about at the same time. We see that um, Homo sapiens bury their dead. The Neanderthals buried their dead, but Homo sapiens uh, bury their dead with all kinds of objects that can be used in the afterlife. So they're hmm. filling the the graves with weapons and with lights, uh, you know, flints that can be used for light and all kinds of jewelry. And of course, there's religious symbolism, religious figurines, fertility goddesses for the women, or um, you know, the uh, lion, um, um, human hybrids uh, statues for the men, you know, that you know, protecting them with the gods, the transcendent, the spiritual, uh, you know, in their uh, journey in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. well, of course, there's nothing like this in Neanderthal uh, culture as well. And uh, furthermore, um, uh, you can see also um, there's a huge development in the sophistication of the dwellings that people are living in. So starting about 50,000 years ago, this is coincident with um, syntactically significant language, consistent with mathematics, consistent with art and symbolism, uh, consistent with burying the dead with all kinds of grave objects that can be used in an afterlife, consistent with the figurines that represent divinities, consistent with uh, all of these things. You have very sophisticated um, you know, dwellings, uh, primitive dwellings, uh, some of which are preserved quite nicely in some caves uh, that just simply did not exist before. So something happened at this juncture that looks very much like all of the indications of self-reflectivity, all of the indications of what we call rational intelligence, mm -hmm. conceptual ideas, and rational thought. So when you put it all together, I'm going to say about 60,000 years ago, Homo sapiens received mm -hmm. a soul for the very first time. If um, Berwick and Chomsky are correct in their book, Why Only Us, then it probably happened in a single member of the human family, uh, probably um, either um, a, a mito, uh, it would, wouldn't be mitochondrial or white chromosome atom be later than that, mm -hmm. but about uh, 65,000 years ago, one member of the human family received that, and since that time, it looks like um, you know, God has been supplying mm -hmm. uh, the rest of the human race, the progeny of that person um, uh, with uh, souls. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, we can see um, pretty much, pretty clearly that uh, suddenly there's a categorical difference uh, between Homo sapiens before, so, uh, you know, um, the uh, 
um, the arrival of the soul 65,000 years and after 65,000 mm -hmm. years ago. I mean, it's totally different. I mean, there, there's, there's no similarity at all. One is far, far, far more sophisticated than the others. And the, the thing that's so mysterious mm -hmm. is it was so sudden, you know, that this great leap forward can only be explained by a level of intelligence that goes way beyond, a level of self-consciousness that goes way beyond anything our homo sapien ancestors and mm -hmm. certainly our neanderthal ancestors had okay. so you don't have to worry about praying for your neanderthal ancestors they did not have a soul i'm absolutely convinced okay very good let's go on to satan's tactics how the devil works page 209 mm -hmm. one of the things you bring up in this book is something uh you talk about the power of conscience that brands mm -hmm. evil action with deep feelings of shame and guilt while branding good actions with mm -hmm. feelings of honor and nobility. But I, I thought shame and guilt were not, they're, they're not good anymore, are they? <laughs> well, <clears throat> to be uh, frank with you, shame and guilt have a huge purpose, and uh, I think they come right from conscience, and I think, you know, the great articulation of this is in the wonderful John Henry Newman, uh, who, boy, I'll tell you, he puts an argument together that just almost utterly convinces you, not only in the existence of God, but that God is the voice of this authoritative father who has, uh, you know, who is transcendent, has an authoritative uh, capacity to know, you know, the, the, the good in itself and to hear that voice in its authority, to hear that voice, though, in its same fatherly paternity is what arouses all of the emotions of shame and guilt on the profound levels that we experience it. And so I think right there uh, you can see uh, in, um, in Newman's work uh, just how important the conscience is. Mm -hmm. uh, there you can see how sophisticated it is, but above all, how God's voice is coming through. So what could be bad about that? What could be bad about the very voice that gives every culture in the world the knowledge of thou shalt not cheat or lie or steal or covet one's uh, neighbor's wife or goods mm -hmm. but, and, and so forth? And so you can pretty much, and certainly thou shalt not kill. And uh, so you can see that, that <clears throat> these are universal norms that every culture has, that every religion has, and, and there's almost no departure from them. And, and uh, people resonate toward that naturally because it's consistent with the voice of their conscience, mm -hmm. that fatherly authoritative voice of their conscience. And so that's why mm -hmm. uh, conscience is so important. It's, it's not that it just gives us this sense of right and wrong. It's not that it just fills us with shame mm -hmm. and guilt when we do evil and nobility and goodness when we do good. But it's also that it is the voice of God. And I think, like I said, John Henry Newman has a wonderful proof of this. And, um, you know, I have a, a, a good explication of it um, in my book, The Soul's Upward Yearning, in chapter two, if you want a summary of Newman's brilliant argument. Well, how do you respond? You hear a lot of times what they say, well, Newman says your conscience is supreme, and so people, maybe like a Nancy Pelosi mm -hmm. or somebody out there today, a politician <laughs> or even somebody else in the church would say, well, my conscience is clear about X, Y, and Z. I, I, my conscience is clear about 
uh, you know, the, the gay lifestyle or some other uh, form of lifestyle, you know, that's out there. Mm -hmm. And so you can't criticize me and I shouldn't feel guilty over it if my conscience is fine with it. Yeah, that's treating conscience uh, like a mere feeling of, uh, of peace, uh, you know, simpatico feeling uh, of some sort. That's not mm. conscience. Uh, conscience uh, uh, is not just something that, uh, uh, you know, where, where you have a feeling of, you know, of peace or a feeling that you've rationalized off everything <laughs> properly. The first thing is, when you listen to your conscience, uh, I can assure you that murder will be right at the top of the list of things that you should avoid. If not, surely genocide will be. Now, if you say, well, my conscience is perfectly clear promoting a genocide or promoting the murder of an innocent human being, and you can say my conscience is clear, uh, I could probably validate that according to just about every religion in the world, who also right, has an insight uh, into um, the, the, the dictates of our conscience in a very consistent way, that according to just about every religion in the world, your conscience should not be clear. Uh, you, you know, there's, there's something wrong. So you say, well, what could be wrong? Why would I feel peace instead of feeling this nagging sense of, of guilt and alienation and falsity and inauthenticity? Why don't I feel the feelings of the telltale heart or, you know, um, Raskolnikov and Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment mm -hmm. or so many other characters, Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and, and Shakespeare, etc.? Why is it that I don't feel those things because eventually if you ignore your conscience if you put it away right like the mafia guy says you know it was really hard for me to kill the first two three times out especially to kill a guy I didn't even know uh, but you know somebody put a hit on him so I I had to do it it was hard to pull that trigger but now you know I feel perfectly good about it you know you know I, I you know I kill it well of course, what happens, of course, is the conscience is just completely dulled out of existence, and that's why we call that lack of conscience that leads to kind of a, a pathological uh, desire to kill, uh, not just a, a failure to avoid killing, actually a, a liking of it. Mm -hmm. uh, that can happen by simply ignoring your conscience time and time, and time again and going against it time and time and time again. You dull it to the point where it has no efficacy whatsoever. At that juncture, of course, your soul is in real danger. So the point is, if you've dulled your conscience that much, mm. the one thing you really want to be careful of is, wow, what have I done to myself? How far along the road of darkness have I gone that I cannot even hear that voice of conscience screaming out at me? that I should not be taking the lives of an innocent victim, that I should feel nothing when I am actively promoting taking a child who is a week away from being born and just literally dismembering it, and I'm going to actively promote it and clap and feel joy when I hear about it. Why is it that I don't feel any sense of remorse, alienation, hypocrisy, inauthenticity, and outright guilt. Because maybe my mm. conscience has been so dulled that I don't even know how to recognize it anymore. Mm. 
how far down the road to darkness, real spiritual darkness is that. But that's basically the reason. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you ignore your conscience long enough, if you reject it long enough, you don't have to worry about it anymore. It stops nagging you. You've built up a callus, but boy, you are cooperating with the one spirit that would have you ignore your conscience, reject it, dull it, and kill it. And that would be the evil spirit himself. That's right. my view. Right. Moving on to the section on uh, 211, how the evil one tailors temptation for each individual. Satan does his homework. He seeks out the vices to which we are most prone. How does he do homework? How does he find that out? <laughs> well, of course, uh, Satan is a, a very, very astute spirit, uh, has uh, tremendous intellectual uh, capacities, uh, can sense even our own subconscious uh, direction. Is, you know, he can't act against your freedom, though. Mm -hmm. If you say no, and you mean no, and you start praying like, you know, in the name of Jesus, be gone, Satan, a few good times, repeating it again and again, and you really mean it, I'm telling you, he cannot go against your freedom. However, he's got a sense of what, you know, where your desires are. He has a sense of where your weaknesses are because he studies, 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 says St. Ignatius of Loyola, mm -hmm. like the enemy commander who keeps going around the fortress, studying for the weakest point. And when he finds it, he falls upon it, right, with his whole force. And, and, and he's very hard to stop. Uh, when he's got it located. So yes, uh, the evil spirit does do his homework. He does study your habits. He does study your desires. He does look for the times when you have succumbed uh, to temptation. And of course, he's going to repeat it. Mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's very intelligent. And uh, that's, how, that's how he right. works. And uh, yeah. uh, we can depend on him doing exactly yep, the, that. The quote on the bottom of that page, where he finds his weakest and most in need for our salvation, there he attacks and aims at taking us. Oh well, yeah, by storm, exactly. Right. That's right. So you also say in here, uh, there are four major components that the evil one considers when preparing his specific plan of attack. The first one is the vices, then the virtues, times and conditions, and then the resentments we might hold towards God. Let's jump to that, about number four. Yeah. The resentment. Yeah. The yeah, the resentment. So, you know, a lot of the time we, uh, you know, we resent um, uh, God. And, and m m you know, most of the time this has to do with uh, being obedient to a moral code. So, you know, you might think, gee whiz, you know, everybody else is out there um, uh, having sex with their boyfriend. Mm -hmm. I should be able to have sex with my boyfriend. You know, God, why are you, you know, forcing me to do you know, what nobody else seems to have to do. Mm. Now, that's an easy one, right? Uh, you know, because it's the right thing to do. But, of course, to a, a person who doesn't have a well-formed conscience, who hasn't, you know, had a, a, a good education and moral upbringing, that might not be obvious, and that could cause a resentment. Just like a child could resent a parent for uh, basically just telling them what the Ten Commandments mm -hmm. are, you know, and just saying, you know, you've got to make restitution for that 
thing that you stole, mm. or you you you've got to you know uh, undo that terrible lie you told about Johnny, and now you know Johnny's all you know bollocked up, and mm. and his reputation is spoiled because of you. You you got to tell people the truth, come clean, mm. you know, and so forth and so on. So you know when a parent says uh, that terrible news, oh the terrible resentments that can come because right. quote unquote everybody else is doing it. Absolutely. But uh, the, the evil spirit loves to capitalize on any resentments we might have. Also, of course, we, none of us is created equally, right? Some people were challenged in school. So they go, why, Lord, do I not have the same mathematical capacity right. as Joey over there? Or why, Lord, do I not have the same athletic capacity? Or why am I not as popular as Sue? Or why, and so forth and so on. So as they play this comparison game, and of course, you're always going to find yourself right. wanting in some and why way. Why does or the another. clock have to always run out? That's the question. <laughs> so, with that being the case, we're going to ask for your blessing as we head out the door. Absolutely. And bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may you have the Spirit of God within you to detect all of the possibilities that you have for following the way of the Lord, to give you patience, to give you depth of understanding, to give you a sense of wanting to follow the Lord as if it were the most important priority of your life. And may Almighty God bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Father. We shall see you next week. And likewise, we shall see all of you. Father's books are available, of course, through Religious Catalog. Check that out. Look for our on-demand page as well. Next week, we'll continue Evil One, Taylor's Temptation. The Memoirs of St. Peter with Michael Pakalik uh, will be the uh, guest on Bookmark. The Power of Pentecost presented by Father Cedric Pesenia Sunday, June 5th, 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Doug Keck. We'll get it together in time to see you next time here in Father Spitzer's Universe. Thank you.